Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Hey, good morning. You guys are singing loud. I loved it. I normally have to pull that one ear out to hear you. I did not have to pull any any of my uh, my headphones out. Uh, so I'm gonna try and get through my part, and we'll get back to the singing part. Uh, Again, so we're going to go ahead and read uh, the text today. We're in Hebrews chapter 6 together. I'm going to read a couple of the verses that were in the the text last week because they kind of hook into this week, and I think it'll help us make a little bit more sense of what's going on. Uh, Chapter 6, starting in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently awaited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by the two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place between the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Father, come draw near to us. Uh, we ask for your presence. We ask for your uh, work. We just confess to you we're, we're hungry for you. Uh, other things uh, are losing their luster. We need you. Draw near to us. Work in us. Show us the beauty of your glory and uh, your name. We ask for that. Amen. So uh, I've got another confession to make. Like Dave Grohl, if you know, Foo Fighters. I'll tell you later if you don't. Uh, I hope to someday win the lottery. I uh, I think about it from time to time when I'm in between activities or whatnot. What I would do with the money. Any of you guys do that? Okay. I was going to say you're liars. You're liars, all liars. Um, back when I was in Iowa and I was a, a younger man, I, I, without kids or as many obligations or anything like that, uh, I remember thinking uh, about winning the lottery, and I thought, if I win, I'm going to go buy me a motorcycle. That's what I'm going to do first. A motorcycle with a big, big back wheel, matte black paint job, some cool wheels. Not too much chrome, because too much chrome on a motorcycle, you look bougie. Loud exhaust, powerful engine. I had no house back then, but my plan was to go buy a motorcycle first. The Lord has sanctified my thoughts a little bit now, uh, so that is uh, good. I guess nowadays I'm a little bit more mature, a little bit older. I would not buy a motorcycle first. I would still buy a motorcycle. Uh, little things enter my mind. Uh, I love that we have a house. I hate our garage. I would, I, would in, I would increase the size of our garage. I would have a, a house payoff party, and you could come if you wanted where I would celebrate, how much money do you owe the bank? I'd have you all ask me. I'd be like, no money. My house is mine, right? I'd, ha- I'd have this party, and it would be, like, wonderful. I would for sure buy us a building, and then the next day we would have a no more setup party. 
I finally get an amen off of. I see how you are. Um, these are the kinds I think about, the things I think about every once in a while. They go through my head. I also hope the Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl every <laughs> single year. Um, I picture myself donning the Cowboys star at a Super Bowl party with all my friends. The clock strikes zero. The boys are leading. Like Jimmy Johnson, I just scream out, how about them Cowboys, and like celebrate. And I realize now that my team won too early. Like, I wasn't old enough to appreciate and gloat properly, so I need them to win now. I hope that they win in my later years so I can kind of revel in it appropriately. But here's the problem. All of those hopes are tethered in absolutely no part of reality whatsoever. <laughs> Though I hope to win the lottery, I don't know that I've ever bought a lottery ticket. I, I, I don't think I have. Maybe I think I've got one as a gag gift, like a scratcher or something like that. But I'm not the guy who's like, give me four Powerballs. It's a bazillion dollars. I've, I've never done that. So my odds aren't super stellar. They're not much worse than if you do buy a ticket, but they're still not super good. And though I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl, Jerry Jones is alive and owns a team, so that's probably not going to happen either. It's not tethered in reality. It's wishful thinking. They are the musings of a man that has absolutely zero reason to place confidence in those hopes. It would be foolish for me to start living as if there was any certainty to them. And we're joking around a little bit about some goofier things, and, and you guys love to laugh about the Cowboys being terrible and my dreams getting crushed, but we place our hopes in all kinds of things. Uh, we do it with some serious calculation. Sometimes we do it and we don't even realize what we're doing it, but we, we place our hopes in things like our jobs. If I can just get a job and accumulate enough wealth in my life, then, then I'll be prepared and, and I'll be able to retire. And, and no matter if there's recession or upswing or downswing or anything else, like I'll, I'll be insulated away from trouble. So we, we hope for jobs and accumulation of wealth because they give this illusion that we'll be safe and nothing can, can touch us. We place our hope in our families. Some people place their hope in their, their poor children. Some people place their hope in their spouse or the pursuit of the spouse that they don't have to kind of fill the holes in their heart and the, their life. Some will place their, their hope in experiences. The fun things in life that make life worth living will make that mundane nine to five just a little bit more livable. So I hope that I can have some fun experiences and some fun things and some escapes and some vacations. Some people will put it in a political party or I hope that this political person will get elected, or some people place their hope in the government. The government will fix all of my, my needs, and some place it just in the ability to minimize conflict. I just hope I can do everything I can to have the, the path of least resistance. We hope in all kinds of stuff. For you right now, I wonder what your hope is in. What I found about my own heart, just like the story in Iowa and the story now, is our hopes definitely shift at times. So though you can think you understand what you hope in, another time you may be hoping in something completely different. So I wonder, what, what are you leaning into? What are you hoping for right now? What would appease your head and your heart as the hope that would make things better? What are you throwing the full weight of your hope into? Where does your mind go in times of stress? Where does your mind go just when you have extra time and you get to kind of think about uh, some stuff that would be cool? What does your heart hope for that would make life joyful, peaceful, worth living? The author is going to angle in at this. The things that we can place our hope in are endless in possibility, but we must realize they aren't all equal in probability. 
You understand that? The things that you hope in, they're endless in possibility, but they are not all equal in probability, meaning there's greater or lesser things that are worth you putting your hope into them because there is greater and lesser chances for the, some of the things that we place our hope in to actually come to pass and, and deliver for us. The author of Hebrews is encouraging you and I to put our full hope, lean all the way back in it, all of your hope, into God's promises. Let that be, as he calls it, the steadfast anchor of your soul. Throw all of your hope in there. Every bit of it, the word of the Lord can handle it. The thread that the author has been weaving may be helpful for us. I, I've had to step back. I've talked to the other elders a couple times about it and, and, and ask, okay, what's going on? Why is he kind of navigating this way? So the last couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, he gave us this warning about chronic immaturity in the faith. If you don't want to grow, you don't want to grow in the word, and you're just kind of uh, all over the place. Then he talks about apostasy, people who kind of walk away from Jesus. They gladly claimed him at one point, and now they literally hate him and can't stand him. Then he moves into a text about kind of confirmation and encouragement, right? So uh, immaturity, apostasy, then encouragement, saying God loves you, and he will never be unjust to you. He'll never overlook the, the works, the fruit of faith in your life, fruits of love that come out when you love his kingdom and you love his name and you also love his people. He will not ignore that. This was the first significant move of trying to tie your assurance to God's character and not your emotion. I want you to take the way you see yourself and your steadfastness and the ability to be loved off of how you feel and on to who God is. But remember what came next. That's why we reread the, the first part of the text at the beginning. After that, the author says, even though you are sure of God's love, you are sure that you are beloved, he says, then press forward in earnestness. And he presses a little bit. Do not be sluggish. Keep going. Do not stop. Imitate those who came before you so you can reach your inheritance. It's like an athlete uh, being told by their trainer, hey, I know that you've ran 80 miles already. Well done. You've made some progress. Good job. I need you to keep moving, keep fighting, keep grinding. You are not done yet. Don't be content to stop. In those situations when we get tired, when we feel worn down by life and maybe even uh, we just feel like, you know, I'm good. Like he called me beloved, I'm content. Um, I, I, I just kind of want to do my own thing and put things on autopilot. It, when, you, when you're in that spot and yet you hear this call from the author to do more, to not let up, to press forward, in that moment you get what I call the intruder in your mind, uh, the voice that says, why should I? Why, why do I need to keep going? Why, why should I remain uh, intentional? Why do I need to, to keep grinding? What exactly is my, my motivation? What is the carrot? Why, why do I need to kind of keep doing this? It reminds me, if you've been around, you maybe have heard this story of my youngest sister, Chelsea's short-lived soccer career. She played soccer when she was little on a little kid's team. If you've ever watched kids' soccer, it's horrible. Right? There are no like great passes or great shots. There's just a, a horde that runs back and forth around the ball. You can't really see anything. They just kind of chase each other. And, and, and my sister, she's always, God love her, she's marched to the beat of her own drum forever. And I actually respect that about her because she's going to do her. But one day this herd went towards the opposite goal. And she goes, nah, ain't doing it. And she just stayed where she was and she chilled out. Mind you, she wasn't the goalie. She wasn't supposed to stay. She's just like, I'm just going to let him go. And as the story goes, my dad yelled something to the effect of, Chelsea, run, go get him, chase the team. 
go. And I envision the intruder in her mind going, why? Why should I? Of what benefit is it for me to run the full length of that field? I mean, you're going to take me to ice cream anyway afterwards. I don't care if my team wins. Like, what is the benefit of me running? Again, she found no logical reason that she needed to run anymore, so she yells, Dad, it's okay. They'll be back in a minute. (laughs) She was not wrong. They did come back. There was no motivation, no strong reason to keep moving, so she didn't. In moments that you question, why should I keep going, though? Why is there a need for me to press, to be intentional, to not be sluggish? Why can't I mail it in? Why can't I hang it up? Why can't I rest on what I did last year or another moment or something else like that in the moments that doubt creeps into your mind and you begin to wonder also things because other things normally come with it as well. Does God love me? When you're beaten by the waves of life and you feel the currents are too much and things are difficult and you begin to kind of doubt God's faithfulness and his goodness, what keeps you in those moments from giving up or falling all the way apart? The author says the promises of God should. They are the rock, they're the carrot, they're the motivation, they are the anchor. This is the second move of tying our assurance or hope in life to God's character and not our emotions, not our circumstance not even our immediate perspective. This is a crucial part of maturing in your faith and becoming steadfast, immovable. We cannot be ruled by our feelings or our perceptions of things. Now, you don't want to swing too far. You need to kind of pay some attention to the way you feel. But you need to give more weight to God's promises, God's words, and God's commands. They must anchor you. If we zoom out again just a a little bit more and ask, why is this text right here? The original audience, remember, they had started getting some persecution following Jesus and holding to the faith that was given to them by the apostles and the disciples that was handled down. All of a sudden, it's becoming hard, and, and the grueling work is kind of adding up and weighing on them. And at this point, on top of that, they'd even seen some people that they love, family members and friends, have have abandoned it already. They've jumped ship. They're not going anymore, and they hate Jesus, and they hate the church, and they probably hate what they are doing on the backdrop of all of that tension, the friends walking away, the difficulty in the culture, the pull to quit must have been incredibly strong. The author says, I can stand here and tell you not to quit. I can tell you to push forward confidently because of the hope that we have in God's promises. That's my motivation. I can stand here strong and go, oh, no, no, there's something better. Keep going keep going. The author in the text then asks us to look at Abraham in the Old Testament for an example of this, and then it'll kind of tie it to us as well as he keeps going. God promised Abraham that he would bless him and multiply him in Genesis chapter 12. Fast forward after this promise, 10 years later, after the the promise to multiply, Abraham still has no kids. There has been no multiplication for him. So process how you would feel in that moment. Someone makes you a promise regarding something that you deeply, deeply want. One year, you don't get it. Two and a half years, it's still not there. How are you going to feel at the five-year mark? You still don't have it. Eight years, nine years, ten years, and over, and he still doesn't have this promise. So Abraham begins to fall into sorrow it says, God, I still have no children of my own. You promised to bless me and multiply me, but if I die tomorrow, my stuff won't even go to my own descendant. All of the beauty that you've given, I don't even have someone to pass it on to. Lord, this waiting is hard. And God tells Abraham, don't worry, you'll have a son of your very own. 
He takes him outside and he points to the stars and says, Abraham, one day your descendants will be like those stars, as many as them. Even though Abraham waited and he waited and he waited and he saw no progress, in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and he took him at his word and he waited patiently more. The 16th verse of Genesis 15 It says Abraham's belief in that very moment, his faith that God would do what God said, his faith that God would come through, even when it looked impossible, God credited that to him as righteousness. This is a foreshadowing to us. How God will provide salvation by grace through faith. How it is the belief in God and what he provides and what he will do that give us favor with God, not our works, not what you have figured out, not what you have figured out not to do, not all the things that you've better been able to manage in your life. It is us trusting in God, what he provides and what he says he will do, even when it doesn't make sense. This is the faith of salvation. I believe God that you will do what you said, that you will honor your word that it is true that you will come through even when I literally have no clue how those pieces are going to fit together. I believe you and trust you. This is the faith of salvation. If you're tracking, God has made a promise and yet Abraham is still waiting. God repeats the promise to Abraham to promise and or to multiply him. Abraham patiently waits some more. His waiting wasn't perfect. Let's be really honest. If you look at the book of Genesis, he did some shady stuff. He did some weird things in his waiting. So his, his kind of faith kind of went up and down a little bit. All, but overall, he believed in the Lord. And at that point, God decided to then reinforce his promise to Abraham with an oath. He promised him and he reminded him of his promise. And he said, hey, I'm going to give you an oath. I want to reinforce it. I want you to have confidence in that. This is what verse 16 and 17 said. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is a final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchanging character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. An oath isn't something that's like a promise. We don't make a lot of oaths as adults in culture. Kids do if you watch them, but we don't. What's a promise? A promise is giving your word. The, 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 uh, the thing that you appeal to, that you call to in a promise is the, trust, or the trustworthiness of yourself. You're appealing to yourself in that moment. But an oath is where you appeal to something greater, something stronger, something more weighty than yourself. So you're essentially like taking it up a notch, the weight of the promise. So when you hear a kid say, cross my heart and hope to die, that's an oath. Why? Because all of a sudden, they're like, hey, my life is on the line. It's not just my word. May I die if I'm not telling you the truth. That's, that, that's up a bit, right? I swear on my grandmother's grave. Like, kids do that. I don't know why. But I, I guess that's bigger as well. I swear on everything holy. It's an oath. It's not just about you. It's about everything holy. You, you see this kind of upping of the ante, appealing to something greater. The text says that God wanted to show more convincingly to the heirs that his promise was good, so he gave them this oath. But here's the problem. If an oath draws on something bigger than you, what can God appeal to that is greater, that is more weighty, that is more holy than himself? And the answer is there is nothing. So the text says God appeals to himself. He makes an oath by swearing on himself. This is the highest appeal that can be made, the highest ante that can be given. When God swears by his own name, we know he will hold to what he has said. 
Because God is unchanging, he is unmovable, his character won't be altered. God's character, his name is on the line with this word. So you, you may ask, okay, so what's the big deal with that? Why did God even do that? Why did he swear and appeal to himself? Why did God need to go further? And the answer is he didn't need to go further. God didn't have to do any of that in the text, but he did that because he desired something for his children. He desires for them and all believers who come after to have a stronger confidence that he will come through. He didn't have to do it, but he wants your uh, back to be stiffened, your, 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 your belief in him to be strengthened so that even when things come at you, you go, no, he's going to hold to his word, a rock solid confidence. He had already said it twice. He didn't need to again, but he loves you enough to do that. If this picture of a loving, good father isn't coming clear to you, I don't know how you'll see him as loving. God doesn't want his people to be terrified all of their life. He doesn't want them to always second guess his love and his promises and his faithfulness. He doesn't want them always wondering, will God really save us? Will God really deliver us? Will God really bless me and provide for me? Will God really bring me into glory? So he gives them a powerful oath and his name is on the line. What does it mean when he says this? It's as if he is saying, if I don't come through with my promise to you, then may I be a liar. May my character be destroyed. May I be destroyed if I don't prove to come through with what I've said. You may think that those words are an exaggeration, but but they aren't. If God is holy and righteous, if he has unchanging character, if he is the very embodiment of glory, if his holiness is like a burning fire, he isn't like us. If God doesn't come through with his promise, if he falls short on them, then that would make God a liar, destroy his very character and nature and make God no different than a lying human like you and me. Step back even further and look at the full scope of God's kindness for us. What are his promises centering on? Well, they center on redeeming sinners like you and me for what we broke in our fall. His promises are to bless multiply, redeem, forget our sin, bring into glory. All of those problems or all those promises deal with the problem that we created through our sin. I point this out to say God not only makes a plan to save those who are lost, he not only loves us enough to send Jesus and have him pay in blood for our sin, but he also, when he didn't even need to, put his holy name on the line so that we could believe it so that we would not be scared every time life is difficult. God didn't need to send Jesus to die, but he did because he loves us. And God didn't have to put his name on the line, but he did because he loves us. The Bible, as we keep kind of learning and looking and leaning into it, shows us that God continues to put himself on the line for people who sinned against him. He provides the plan, he provides the fix, he provides the faith, he provides it all over and over and over. He sticks his neck out for broken people who are broken by sin. Why? Because he's abundant in love. That's why we sing how deep the Father's love. That's why we we want to see his name and his character and his holiness uh, in, in a truer way. He loves in a deeper way than we could ever understand. God, show us your love so that we can have this faith. 
I said it earlier in the text, this text is the second move of transferring our hope or our confidence off of how we feel and onto the very character of God. Can we agree that God's character is a much more stable platform than our emotions? It's definitely a more stable platform than our situations. The author says, well, God put his very name on the line. And since we know it's impossible for him to lie, literally impossible, we should now be able to have strong encouragement. Look at the words, not just be encouraged, strong encouragement. How strong? Strong enough that you hold fast to the great hope that has been set before you. I I started hunting a whole lot again this year, and I got into this form of hunting where grown men climb themselves high into trees, and they tether themselves up really high, high enough that you die if you fall, right? And so in this, you have ropes around a tree, and you have carabiners, and you have all these locking things, and there's this moment when you're way up in the tree, and you've you've bought the equipment, and I've watched many YouTube videos, but there's still this moment that you got to get up, and you got to go... And you got to like put your full weight back into the saddle and the stuff that you have. In that moment, the hope is will it hold, right? A little bit more, a little bit. Oh, it's holding. This is the hold fast. He'll hold you. It won't break. It won't let go. The hope that he has, the promises that he has, you can put all of the weight of everything that you ever hoped for in it. Look at the language we find in verse 19. It says we have this as a sure, sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. Can you see how he's trying to lavish hope on you? Strong encouragement, hold fast, sure, steadfast anchor. If God's promises rest on his character, then we get to have the strong and confident encouragement. Can we like cut to the side of a little bit of our belief that we're further along than we are at times and go, man, it's such good news that our hope rests on him and not me. That it doesn't rest in my ability to hold fast or my ability to hold strong, but it rests in his name and who he is. If our encouragement rests in God's character, then there is no chance that it'll fail. There's a lot of things that we put up to ourselves and our ability and our ability to make things happen and all of that is just in you. This is all in him. The type of confidence that you can have if you see God truly then. God cannot lie no matter how dark your days look or how impossible it may seem. God will come through and that is an anchor for your soul. What does an anchor do? It keeps a ship from getting lost at sea. More importantly, it it keeps a ship from from getting tossed to and fro and absolutely being destroyed by the waves. Ocean and waves in the Bible are a form of of chaos. They're a metaphor for trouble out in the the world. This means that the author is, is saying when life gets hard, when you're getting beat up, when the waves are crashing and it's hard to hold on, you don't even know if you can hold on. You can have faith in God. You don't have to be the one that holds. He's the one that holds. You have to put your faith in him and he'll hold you. He will hold me fast. This is what keeps us grounded in the middle of the storm. God, it is you and you alone. I don't understand. I don't see how you'll come through. I don't see how you'll fix us, but you will. But you will. Again, this may sound like ethereal language, like it's kind of out out of uh, reach, kind of like a a vague sense, but, but that's actually the opposite of what this text is supposed to be. This is kind of a plan for battle when life gets heavy. 
When temptation comes, when pain comes your way, when darkness is closing in and you have no clue how it's going to part, how you're going to get through the other side, the author isn't giving you figurative, empty, it'll be okay, I'll pray for you type of language. He's saying, remember the promises of God, beloved. Again, not figuratively, literally recite the promises of God to yourself right now in the middle of the pain. Recite who he is to your heart. Remind yourself that God has made an oath to you. Remind yourself that he has made a promise to you. Remind yourself of God's track record. Remind yourself of the times that he has come uh, through for you and remind yourself that he has never been able to not follow through with anything he's ever said that he would do. Not one time. One of the simplest and most profound and common tricks of the enemy is that he always does this. He pulls on little threads to make you believe that God will not come through in the end. That's his biggest, that's his biggest ploy. Let me just pull on this to tell you he's not going to fix that. He's not going to do that. He's not going to help you. He won't be there for you over and over and over. If I can make them doubt God's goodness and his faithfulness, if I can get them to believe that God is cruel and he's mean and he doesn't care in moments like that, we have to remember we have an anchor because if you believe that, you're a boat without the anchor. You're going to get slammed around and tossed on your head. We feel that when life gets out of control, right? Beaten up, close to being destroyed and floored. And the enemy the whole time going, I told you he's a liar. You can't trust him. I don't even think he loves you. I don't think he cares for you. Over and over, doubt the mercy of God is what the enemy does. But the author says, if you hold fast to God's promises, you will become stable. Not you might be able to, or you can hope for stability, you will be. You'll be like a, a boat anchored in the harbor, even in the middle of the storm, The text becomes an invitation and a declaration to your heart. The invitation is to become more rooted and planted in an untethered, unplanted world. And a declaration that God will never, ever, ever lie to you. If you need more proof of this anchor available for your soul, remember Jesus went behind the inner curtain, he tells us. Jesus went in and made a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And now he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. We'll get more into that line that it talks about in the text next week. But for now, the message from the author can really be synthesized down to this, beloved, you are loved by God. Beloved, you have been given a great promise. Beloved, Jesus has made that promise possible. And beloved, because of that, you can be one who has an immovable anchor. So take strong encouragement. And the promises of God to you that he will never, ever, ever fall short. So many of us have experienced people that let us down. God will not. God will never find himself unable to finish what he started. God will never decide that you aren't worth it and leave you behind. God will keep his word to you so you get to believe and have faith and earnestly move forward in the stability of God's word and God's character. What exactly are some of the promises? I saw you kind of taking pictures of that already. Here we go. He's promised to meet your needs in Luke 12. It doesn't say that he's promised to meet your wants. It doesn't say that he's promised to meet your perceived needs or your desires. He knows what you need, and he will always meet your needs. 
He's promised to hear your prayers, Matthew 7. When you wonder, is he listening? Is anyone listening? Can he see me? Does anyone see me? When you wonder if he cares, if he listens, the word says, I, I always hear your prayers. Not only do I hear them, I bid you to come forth and bug me more and come and find rest in me. Come to me and pray. Knock, seek, come, keep coming. Yes, I hear you. I'm the one who keeps asking you to come back. He's promised to never forsake you or leave you. Hebrews 13, when you think all is lost, when you think faith is lost, when you think you are lost, when the storm is crashing you into the rocks and you're not sure what to do, Jesus says, I am here. The Holy Spirit is here. You're not alone. He doesn't promise to keep you away from pain. He promises to be with you in the pain. We should straighten that one out. He's promised to forgive you of your sins if you trust in Jesus Christ. Your forgiveness is not dependent on your perfection. That's the best news that you'll ever get. There's times we can fake a good game and we can feel good. Like, man, I, I, I kind of killed that week, right? I did, I did good. Talked about Jesus twice at work. Your perfection is based on Christ's. It doesn't wax or wane. It's not seasonal. Your forgiveness isn't predicated on you. It's predicated on Christ's work and God's promise to forgive you through Christ's work. In Christ, your sin is as far away as the east is from the west. That's the message. He's promised to strengthen you and dwell within you by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 3.16. The Holy Spirit is there waiting and ready to give you strength in times of need. Francis Chan did some great work about the forgotten God being the Holy Spirit. Here's the probability. The Holy Spirit is there waiting and ready to give you strength in times of need, but the probability is that you don't ever ask him for it. There's strength there. There's encouragement there. And Jesus even told us very clear words, it's better that I go away so that the paraclete can come and give you strength and encouragement and wisdom and walk with you. Again, he's not a liar. He's promised to one day bring you to glory, Colossians 3. One day the pain will be over and things will be remade and the glorious king will stand and reign over all. We won't be voting anymore. This isn't an exhaustive list of all the promises that God has made to you, and, and these aren't vague possibilities. They aren't wishful thinking. They aren't the musings of psychotic men and women. These are things that God has specifically promised to his children. Remind, remind yourself, these are not universal promises to all. God hasn't promised to bring everyone into glory. We don't gloat in that, but we need to understand that. God hasn't promised to save everyone, and the promise to wipe every tear away isn't for everyone, but it is to you, son or daughter, if your faith is in Jesus. If you're in the covenant of grace, if you trust in Jesus for the problem of your sin and to the best of your ability, you're following him, and you believe that God will come through, and that is the promise to you. This leaves us with a call to action call to action may be a little bit different than some of the others. The call to action resembles the book of Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Stand up. You act like you don't have a promise. Stand up. It's a call to battle, to wake up, O oh sleeper. God is with you. 
This is a call to get out of the posture of fear and self-apathy and worry and to begin pushing back darkness for the king of glory with the king of glory. The questions today are pretty basic. You could see them coming if you know me. How are you doing with the promises of God? Do you feel strong and secure in them? Do you feel like there's an immovable anchor and you even look back at other times when, when there was no anchor and, and man, I'm, I'm grateful. I believe you and I trust you and I'm holding to you. And man, is that where you're at? Or, or maybe the promises of God are distant and fragile and doubt has creeped in and you don't even know if you believe that he will hold. If they are strong, the play is to thank the Lord and lean into the Lord God. Thank you that you've held fast. Thank you that you're slowly teaching me to hold on to you and not hold on to my own ability. Please, please, please don't quit. Spirit, help me depend more and more and more and more on your work and not on mine. And if the promises of God do not feel close, be encouraged that God won't break his word to you. Ask the Holy Spirit for help. Again, this is the play. Spirit, come help. I need you. Ask like David in the Old Testament, Father, give me a new heart. Mine doesn't feel strong enough to believe. Will you give me more belief? Will you give me uh, more resilience? Will you give me a heart that, 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 that feels strong in you? I need you. Ask God, will you be my anchor? Will you let me see your goodness and your promises more clearly? This message, this text is meant to pour courage and hope in your soul. There are moments where we have sins dealt with. There's moments when, when, when there's heavy conviction. There, there's all different types of things that happen throughout the book of Hebrews. This is one that says, stand up. You have such a beautiful promise. Stop being so scared. Here's courage and hope. And when you go, but what's it tethered to? It's tethered to the character of God. There's nothing stronger. If you find yourself needing that and needing it more, go and call out to the Lord in uh, our time of worship today. Lord, will you strengthen me more? Man, you guys can come back up. We're beginning to put it in part of our liturgy. Have you just kind of seen? We have a call to worship. We play a couple songs. We go into the word on the back half. We play more songs. And then there's moments where we're just spreading things out so that you can pray. And the hope is that you will go to the Lord and see that he will be faithful to draw near to you when you draw near to him and he'll be faithful to meet your needs. So as you begin to see these, not every week are we gonna tell you, hey, this is your time to pray, but we're giving you time to pray. Lean in and ask. If you're joyful, if God has anchored you, thank him. Give him the worship worthy due to his name because you didn't make that happen. He did. Give him praise for it. And if you feel weak, ask him for help in that. If you've never turned to the Lord, I would just continue to remind you, you do not have to fix yourself or clean yourself up. You need to know that you're a sinner in need of a savior and ask the Lord to save you. Do not depend on being better than other people or just the, 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 the reality that you think God will save you. Ask him to, and he will. And you can come to the table and take and know that there's a sacrifice for you as well and there's an anchor for you as well. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Uh, also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll play some more music and have some time where we uh, dig into um, worship. I pray that you lean into the Lord. I think a hope that we're building is that you would look forward to times of prayer and not just see that there's a time when some people around me pray. A deep hope of ours is there would be an anticipation building. I get to go to church and the Lord will meet me there. The cynic may go, well, doesn't he meet you everywhere? Yeah, but he, he promises to come amongst his people. So I pray that you would, I hope that you would pray and lean into the Lord at the back end of this. And your heart would be full as you come and take. He is there to meet your needs. If you feel unanchored, he can fix that. If you feel strong, he can maintain that. If you feel lost, he can also deal with that. Will you stand with me, Father? I pray that you do a strong work in us. God, we need you. Holy Spirit, draw near to your people. Let us see the beauty of who you are. Lord, we pray that you give us humble confidence in you. Not that we're proud or boisterous or cruel. Lord, would you let us live like we are anchored? Would you let us see that the anchor holds and that you will never break and you will never lie? I pray for those that have only put a portion of their weight into you, that they would lean all the way back and give it all to you, God. Come, Lord. Draw near to your people. Don't pass us by. We need you. We need your work. We need your hope. Lord, we pray that your name is made much of, that our worship is pleasing to you and that our lives are strong in you, God. I pray that in your name. Amen.